must cravageur. So he came back to Paris with a bottle smaller than this and said, listen, you know what? If you stick to your word, this is the perfume that will bear my name. And I love the fact that it's still so current and almost, yeah, 25 years after it was made, mm. we went opposite the trend and this became our bestseller. When I saw it, I thought like, oh, sexiest girl in the world. But the first person that I sold a perfume to was a man who bought Muscravageur. Welcome back to Scent World, a show that explores the power of expressing yourself through scent. Hello, I'm Jenny B. Fine, the executive editor of Beauty at WWD and Beauty Inc. I've been covering the business side of the beauty industry for over two decades, and I'm so excited to be here today with Frederick Mall, a true pioneer in the fragrance business. Before Frederick, perfumers were more likely than not anonymous, known only to a handful of industry insiders. With his brand, Editions, Frederick gave them a voice, a persona, and a creative outlet. Today, we're going to hear how he's changed fragrance forever, what inspires him, and what's next for his beautiful brand. Welcome, Frederick. Thank you, Jenny. This is very generous. I don't know if I'm up to that, but <laughs> I'll try my best. Well, I'd love to start with the genesis of the brand. You launched Edition Parfum in 2000, and it really yeah. was a watershed moment in the industry. How did you first have the idea for the brand? Take us through those early days. So, uh, several things um, that sort of all collided into turning into Edition Parfum. First, um, I was working, I had been working in the industry for a long time, and I was working almost on a daily basis with perfumers. Mm -hmm. And every day they were complaining. They were complaining because the industry had changed. Uh, they had to deal with marketing people that were not really perfume savvy, that were more interested in making a perfume that would win, that, that would make it do well on um, a marketing test. A uh, focus group, that was the, the name I was looking for, um, at a cheap price and done quite quickly. Right. We used to talk about blockbusters. Exactly. So mm -hmm. they wanted a blockbuster. Mm -hmm. A blockbuster is a sort of one-size-fit-all type of perfume that magically will please everyone, which doesn't really exist, to be honest. But that's another story. Um, and on the other hand, in my private life, where I saw, you know, artists, curious people, people that like luxury uh, or art in general, um, were, not, were sort of walking away from fragrances. They were not wearing perfumes anymore. And so I thought that those two groups should connect and that I had to find a way to make them connect. There was this other thing also um, where working with those very interesting artists, I mean, those perfumers that I saw as interesting artists who I knew and admired, uh, I was always sort of puzzled and by what I saw as an injustice, by the fact that they, no one knew them. Mm. 
people, they were ghostwriters. Mm -hmm. um, people thought that Mr. Dior, Mr. Saint Laurent, or Mademoiselle Chanel had made their perfume themselves. And I thought that people, the public was at a loss of not knowing them. That it was a great story, but also that it was more just uh, to bring those perfumers forward. So I put two and two together and created, I mean, resembled like a little club of the very best perfumers in the industry. Mm -hmm. um, like a publishing house would have a stable of writers. I or love a gallery, these literary a stable, illusions. Yeah, yeah. Or a gallery. Leo Castelli had probably the best artist uh, during the pop art um, um, period uh, and later on, actually. Uh, so, but the idea was to create that group and to give them a platform to express themselves freely. So, killing, uh, um, you know, uh, several birds with one stone, um, allowing perfumers to be free again, to work with, you know, someone who knew the business, me, mm -hmm. uh, and loved the business, who saw perfume as an art rather than as a quick way to make a buck, uh, or a way to make a quick buck, rather, to be logical. Uh, um, and yeah, and it was also a way to to sort of bring them to the world. And was your vision to give perfumers complete creative freedom? Did you have any kind of marketing brief? And in fragrance, we talk about a brief. Um, tell us usually what that consists of. And did you have that or was it just complete freedom? It is complete freedom, let's, but let's explain now. It's as opposed to a marketing brief. A marketing brief is you go to a perfumer or to a perfume house and say, I want a perfume that's going to cost me that much. I want it for that date. I want it to please this kind of group um, coming from that geography, that age, and yeah, roughly that start. And this is my story in terms of advertising. I am talking about, I don't know, someone very dark and sulfurous or about the virgin or about rombo or whatever this is my theme make something that sticks to that so as you heard you never talk about scent when you do that you talk about like a, a certain amount of criteria that the scent has to meet because i came from the perfume industry i came from a lab i grew up at a lab and I can speak the perfumer's language. I share that language. Mm -hmm. So when I work to them, with them, sorry, we don't speak in terms of marketing. We speak the fragrance language, meaning, oh, as perfume is a little bit like a collage, uh, let's, what, what if we mix this ingredient and that ingredient? What if, what if we took this smell, a flower from nature, an existing scent, took only that part of the smell, and mix it with maybe another smell or another ingredient to give it a twist and make it something unique. So, first of all, the conversation to begin with has nothing to do with money. It has nothing to do with a target. It just has to do with the artistry. Then, yes, the freedom comes from the fact that we don't set price targets. You know, the sky's the limit. Um, 
we don't give each other a deadline because we know that sometimes we, I mean, we, we can make a perfume in six months, but it can take a year and a half. I mean, kernel flower was a nightmare. It took us a year and a half and 690 tries to get it right. 690 yes, tries I to get it them. right. At the end, I was so frustrated and furious. Um, I we have were, more questions about yeah, that, but I'll let you finish. But I mean, it was worth it. It was great. But, um, but it was a sufferance. And, and mm -hmm. so, yeah, so we don't set ourselves those limits, but the limits are being legal because there are rules and regulations in our business that, you know, we're adults, we have to follow them. Um, and yeah, and we just want to make sense. Even in terms of money, it's not spending money for the sake of spending money. Um, some things are really expensive. And if they don't do anything to the perfume, we're not going to, you know, be expensive for the sake of being. So, so it's, it's well thought and well carved perfumes by responsible adults. And I'm curious, how do you know when a fragrance is finished? We know that's a very, that, that's a very strange thing. Um, we always know the day when it's finished and we go like, oh, that's it. And, and whether it's with uh, Dominique, Edouard, you know, younger perfumers, we know. First of all, because at the beginning, we set ourselves a very precise goal. And the finishing phase is really um, turning this perfume, which is just an idea, a sketch, into something that is long-lasting, diffusing. So you have all these very objective markers um and then that is comfortable enough that is you know what we self set ourselves to do but without the faults that we that we find usually at the beginning mm -hmm. when you say that you set yourself a precise goal can you give me an example of so that Colonel flower for instance to go back to that uh we had decided with dominique uh to create a tuberose perfume that would not be like Fraca. That was one big thing because mm -hmm. there's this masterpiece called Fraca made by Germain Cellier for Piguet in 1948, uh, which when a perfumer was setting himself or herself to creating a tuberose, they were doing basically a twist of Fraca. And then there is a tuberose flower, which does exist with Germain Cellier sort of um, illustrated then with her means and her talent and we thought like why don't we go back to the tuberous flower itself make something which has those sort of this green aspect this very almost flower shop like smell at mm -hmm. the beginning that morphs into something very very dark that goes into something a bit sort of creamier and sweeter in the back uh, have this sort of it's like a, it's like a Scorsese movie or tuberous mm -hmm. it's super dramatic um, that has all these stages, but yet is true to the flower and is linked to the skin in such a way that you feel that the flower comes out of the person, that you don't know what's the flower and what's the person. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that was the brief. If you, if you speak about brief, and this is the way we work, um, it's not about, oh, let's make a white flower for the Asian market. Mm -hmm. And that's already, whoa, white flower, it's already something. Um, it was really a perfumistic conversation. 
And so when you have that sentence making that very realistic tuberose flower um, and turn that into a perfume to wear, um, basically you have a roadmap. Uh, and you just have to sort of gradually um, make it happen, which is difficult. Can you smell it and just share with us the story behind it? What comes to mind? So when you smell this, it's really like, it's like a rocket. Um, I don't know, it's not very romantic for a perfume to <laughs> describe it like a rocket, <laughs> but it's really sort of several steps. Um, and that was really the, um, how Dominique managed to accomplish this thing. Uh, when you first smell it, it's, it has this sort of green, mm. watery, aquatic type of scent. Mm -hmm. A little bit like the scent that you have when you walk into those flower shops in Europe. There was one that I used to always go to uh, called Moulier, which is uh, in Paris, Place du Palais Bourbon. And, um, and this is actually the perfumery, the so perfumery, the um, um, slip, um, the, um, the flower shop where I used to order tuberose for Dominique in the middle of winter. Mm. And I used to bring tuberose that were actually coming from Italy. Tuberose to in the Dominique. middle of winter. That sounds like the ultimate yeah, luxury. And we used to smell the tuberose and make notes of what we were smelling together at the office to do that. So anyways, so you, when you go to a flower shop and you smell that damp, green, watery smell, it's, I mean, it's sort of very live flower smell. Mm -hmm. This is what you smell on top of this. And you do that with a hint of melon, you do that with a few sort of almost grassy type of green notes. Um, you have these sort of ozonic notes, but that, that are very mild. It's not like cologne or things like that that mm -hmm. are very hard that smell like an oyster. And there's a huge proportion of this in, in this perfume. But then if you sort of go, and as, as now it has evaporated for already a few minutes, you see that darkness on the middle. Mm -hmm. And it's almost camphoraceous, very spicy, very... It has this sort of dark spiciness to it. But then if you let it linger, then there is a base to the rocket, mm -hmm. basically, which is what makes it, because if you think green, dark, ooh, it's sort of hard, but it's sort of sitting on this sort of ocean of softness, mm -hmm. which is, it's um, lactone, so for, for milk, lacté means um, milk in French, um, or milky in French. Mm -hmm. um, so it's those, all those milky notes that we have that are part of, of flowers. Um, and there is one which is what we call, is called a nature identical. Sometimes they are close cousins and sometimes they are identicals but made through chemistry. Mm -hmm. And there's what's called jasmin lactone, which is extremely expensive, made in Japan. Um, that um, is a big key to this because it's the um, lactone which is in gardenia and a little bit in tuberose. So there, amongst the different lactones that you have in this, 
um, there is that, mm -hmm. and it's mixed with a must cocktail, which is Dominique's secret. Um, so musk, if you think of it, doesn't have a color when you smell it. It's like a blur. That's why it's so difficult to work on musks. It's like it's diff It's like a, it's a little bit like in Photoshop where you work with diff different um, filters, mm -hmm. uh, and it's a different way of being going out of focus. It's this gray hues, and but then you can uh, put f uh, colors into musk. Uh, musk is just a haze. Um, so that haze is mixed with the lactone, which is white. So it's this. You have this sort of hazy whiteness mm. that the green and the dark are sort of plugged in. Mm -hmm. this so is that's how aura. that works. Mm -hmm. Amazing. So it's a very complex thing, but in it you can, you, you can, it has common elements with, um, you know, those very warm, lush jasmine that you have in the Mediterranean or it, it always remind me of those jasmine that you have in Los Angeles also. And so when you got to version 639... 90. 690, did you celebrate? <laughs> I remember, <laughs> Where you know were what? you? I was in Papete, Tahiti. Mm -hmm. And I was, it was our 15th anniversary. I remember this thing, I mean, since the beginning to the <laughs> end. Um, and because we were suffering. And we had a problem with diffusion. And because it's like like a puzzle, that thing. And because we got the smell right quite quickly, but then it would disappear and then it would reappear. And then there was too much back notes and there was too much top notes. And it's just getting the whole, the whole chronology, uh, which was so difficult. Mm -hmm. And so we sort of try to put it, it was like a very difficult Rubik's Cube. And, uh, and I remember we were almost done and I left for our 15th anniversary trip and we had decided to go my wife and our kids uh we rented that little boat and went around the Tahitianai island um and i was there and for some reason i had samples at the last samples and i was walking behind mary in on that island and i remember that all of a sudden four hours after in that damp climate after mary had applied it was still smelling and still diffusing. Mm -hmm. and I was like, whoa. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. And I remember vividly where I was working. And I mean, I, I see the image. That's amazing. Yeah. I love that. Have you ever been in a situation where you have disagreed with the perfumer over whether or not something is finished? And no, what never. happened? Never. Never. We actually, to the very, tr to the very, you know, we call them modifications. We have uh, trials. Mm -hmm. We we agree usually on that trial. I mean, That's it's amazing. never. When I say never, it's never. Uh, what I have encountered is perfumes that we can't finish, problems that are too difficult, things that we decide to set aside for a while, and sometimes we go back to them, um, things that are disappointed, uh, being exhausted, because we have come up with very innovative perfumes, um, has, have raised the bar, mm -hmm. and um, we are being more and more ambitious, and it's more and more difficult, actually, to us. We are sort of setting ourselves challenges that are 
you know, higher and higher. And sometimes we set ourselves crazy goals and it just doesn't work. Uh, so it's painful. Can you uh, give us an example no, of no, a it's tough just things, nut? Things that, that we try to do. One of my pet subjects or obsessions is the fact that you have to be, um, perfume has to be part of today's life, of, you know, of one's life. What does that mean? <laughs> it's very difficult to define. There are some, you know, you don't wear the same garments uh, that women used to wear in the 30s and 40s. Uh, the fabrics are lighter now. Mm -hmm. So as a result, the jewelry is lighter today um, because those big brooches that could be on a very thick dress today would, <laughs> would mm -hmm. fall. Um, people have more time, used to have more time to dress, dress up. Uh, yet there's a relation to time which is different. People walk in a different way uh, today. Um, they don't wear the same shoes. There is there there, there is there's this idea of comfort. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just coming back from China where everything seems comfortable in what they're wearing, for instance. And so as a result, I think that those perfumes that um, were full of naturals that would only ignite after a few minutes. First of all, people don't have patience for this anymore. Um, also, there is, I think everything has to be very precise and very well defined in a perfume today um, because we are in a digital uh, era where everything is quite crisp, everything is Photoshop, everything is has this perfection. Mm -hmm. We, um, The light that we are under, is we are lit by LEDs today, not by this warm and condescent light. So. Perfume, strangely, our taste in perfume adapts to all of this. And there is, although there can be an appetite for retro, it has to be reinterpreted in a very modern way. Mm -hmm. And I think that when we have great fragrance culture and this love for some of these old classics, we are sometimes tempted to go back. But then... They are very beautiful, but it's like recreating a Rembrandt. What's the point? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we are we have to live with our time, and if we maybe take that theme, we have to photograph the Rembrandt like um, I don't know, a Cindy Sherman. Mm -hmm. um, it, it it has to be of it has to be current somehow. Do you often bring... It's a big conversation and it's a very abstract one. So one of the things that I'm curious about when you're working with young perfumers, mm -hmm. it seems like traditionally there are a lot of rules in perfumery. Um, how do you feel about breaking those? Are they still relevant for today? And do the rules... Do the traditional rules of fragrance still exist? Like I'm thinking of, you know, we always talk about top notes, heart the heart and the base and increasingly and maybe it is just a marketing ploy you see a fragrance where it says you know there is no top bottom top middle or bottom are the rules of perfumery changing <laughs> uh no uh absolutely not we are in a very technological business and uh the advancements of chemistry um have for the last 35 years um, allowed us to sometimes go away from the traditional uh, pyramid 
And the king of that, and he has been the king of that since he began, and we were at Roar in the mid-80s, uh, where he was already seen as this sort of dead devil, is Dominique Ropion, mm -hmm. uh, who has those huge dosages of something which defy every single logic of sort of regular perfumery. So this whole thing of we are changing proportion as a brand is marketing BS, mm -hmm. I'm sorry. And, and, and who can dare sort of owning this? You have great perfumers that have freedom. It has been the case forever. We were talking about Germaine Célier and Fracas. She was changing the rules in her days. And you also have ingredients, because it's a very technological business, um, that allow us to create new things, mm -hmm. and new scents, and, and use new proportions. Um, now, young people usually are more conventional, which, is, which defies every purpose. So you have, to me, the disappointment with some young perfumers is when they try to be commercial and they become, they are hyper-conventional. And these are the ones that I try to avoid. Mm -hmm. And then you have a few that, you know, have been taught with the Enflipos of that world, of the Maurice Roussel or Dominique, of course, that are lear learning this technique, this classical or not classical technique, this technique in such a way that once they have, I mean, this, com this great command of the technique, um, I mean, that are so good technically, let's put it this way, that they can um, get out of what is seen as conventional mm -hmm. perfume with that pyramid. And they can push boundaries. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a little bit like playing music where you have this amazing technique. If you're, um, I don't know, Prince or Eric Clapton, you can make your guitar sound like no guitars have sound ever because you have that amazing technique. But it's not because you are sort of trying to break the rule. It's first things first. In those, I mean, you have to first really master the technique mm -hmm. to then be able to push it around. And it's and I think people have a very wrong approach, um, understanding of perfumery. They think that it's like, you know, action painting, mm -hmm. that you can sort of do it quickly and have immediate reward. It's actually quite the opposite. To create the action painting-like perfume, you have to uh, work on a perfume as if it was a puzzle. Mm -hmm. And it's very deceptive. I mean, there is this energy of, you know, this very slow-building energy, which sometimes creates like a very sort of splashing image, but it's, it's done very carefully. Mm -hmm. it's, it's much too difficult a business to improvise. Well, I would love to dive into your creative process, into the creative process overall, vis-a-vis -vis some of these incredible fragrances. Um, let's smell another one. Should we go to Musk Ravageur? Musk Ravageur. So that's, you know, as you were asking, you know, about my relationship with perfumers, that's one relationship that has 
evolved and one perfume where I hardly participated at all. Mm. You're speaking of Maurice Roussel? I'm speaking about Maurice Roussel. Mm -hmm. So Maurice Roussel, I didn't know when I started the business. I knew of his work and I was very admirative of his work. And I was talking a lot to Pierre Bourdon in those days. We used to work a, a hell of a lot together. And, um, and we were talking about who would be great contenders for, for Edition Parfum. And uh, so Edouard was obvious, Jean-Claude was obvious, Dominique was obvious. Um, and, and Pierre said, you know, you should call Maurice. This is his number. Um, and obviously agreed. So when I told Maurice about the project, putting perfumers forward, total freedom, being sold outside self-service uh, stores, which I was convinced were the reasons why perfumery had become so sort of mass market. Um, Maurice sort of looked at me in slight disbelief, <laughs> but sort of loved the idea. And in those days, it was sort of situation as today's situation in reverse. He used to live here in New York, and I was in Paris. I said, okay, I'll be back in a few weeks. Uh, I might have an idea for you. So he came back to Paris with a bottle smaller than this and said, listen, you know what? If you stick to your word, this is the perfume that will bear my name. No one wants it. It's, it's, it's seen as almost like it's a curse. It's too over the top. Now, remember that in those days, there were only little flowers, pretty, pretty flowers, uh, <laughs> smelling of water coming out. So having a, a big, unapologetic, oriental, animalic perfume was really opposite of the trend. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I smelled it, and to me, it was, it was really not really something impressive because when I smelled it, I connected it to classics from the past because, you know, trends come and go. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, this is the opposite of what's current, but it's a fabulous perfume. If you compare it to Emeraude, to Ambrantique, to Shalimar, to Obsession, to these warm, ambery, um, vanilla, uh, perfumes, this is like, it's, it's really can stand its ground in this very glorious history mm -hmm. because it's a super ember. Um, so this is more a pyramid in terms of structure. But it's interesting that those pyramids, you know, since Shalimar, for instance, were already in a way not so conventional because you had a lot of back notes. Mm -hmm. So um, in this, you have a lot of amber, um, uh, uh, animalic notes, um, plastic for now, it's synthetic, um, a bit of patchouli, sandalwood, a lot of vanilla, <clears throat> and musk, obviously. Uh, and Maurice was describing it as a musk from the past that has this sort of dirtiness to it. Uh, but then, because all of these are back notes, and 
so in this you have modern technology that's the difference so it's pushing it um but in those in those days you had a lot of citrus um which was just the top note but a lot to use it like a vacuum to mm -hmm. to bring them up today in this you have a bit of this woody embry notes to sort of push it up so it's structured a bit differently i mean it's a perfume from its time so anyway to go back to the story he came with this i tried it on my assistant i thought that it needed a little bit of foreplay and i said why don't you put a bit of top notes it'd be nice it's it's better than you know having a first date and the person arrives naked, it's gonna be a bit, <laughs> yeah. you're gonna think that person is weird uh and so uh you know nice mm -hmm. bathrobe maybe <laughs> and and um and so he wasn't happy and then he agreed but it was you know what it was nothing uh, uh i did nothing on this and and it's and it became instantly our bestseller and it's a very important perfume in the history of Edison Parfum, Muscaragea. Not only because it's been one of our bestsellers since day one, and it still is, and I love the fact that it's still so current, and almost, yeah, 25 years after it was made, mm. it hasn't aged at all. So, and it's a good testament of Maurice's talent. Um, but also, it's, as about freedom, it's also showing that we went opposite the trend. If we had been a marketing company or even like some of those smaller companies today trying to always copy the you bestseller. You would have run the other way. Uh, we would have run the other way. And this became our bestseller. So that says a lot. The other thing is that when I saw it, I thought like, oh, sexiest girl in the world. But the system that I had set for Edison Parfum, which is very, very important, is that I didn't launch this company. People thought I was mad mm. then. I didn't launch this company at perfumeries or in a, you know, in a department store. I opened, crazy, my own store to sell nine perfumes in Paris. Mm -hmm. And because I was convinced that because these perfumes were so different from one another, that if we had, we needed to have one store where we would have a very, very personalized service where, I mean, a store run, uh, managed and run by perfume experts that would profile literally each client, understand what they would wear, if they were loud, if they were shy, um, and then trying to indicate the perfume of the collection, which we thought was right for them. And we were so convinced about, and, and so um, uh, um, yeah, I mean, we had this, this mission, literally, that if we didn't have a perfume which we thought was right for the person, and we thought that another, that that perfume existed elsewhere, we would send people to a competitor mm. saying, you should buy that. This is, we don't have anything for you. The first person that I sold a perfume to was a man who bought Muscavageur. And I thought, mm. like, stupid you, of course. If you think of all these extraordinary Embry Oriental perfumes that have existed, they were sold either for men or for women. Mm -hmm. You, you know, 
basically for women, but of course, it's going to work for everybody. And because of that first man, I remember his face and I even remember his name, uh, that first man who bought a perfume from us, and, and this one, I realized that we really had to be completely, not sex blind, had the contrary, but um, I mean, forget. Genderless gender, yeah. And, and, and basically, I, I hate the word unisex because it means with no sex, in mm. fact, in perfumery. Um, but we were completely open-minded about, you know, the way we were selling. So that, and I owe that to Ms. Carvajal because I w we would have gone there, but it was, we went there the second day. And I, I mean, what's interesting though, is also the design codes of the brand, which feel very neutral. I mean, both yes. masculine and People feminine. used to always say, this is too masculine. You can't launch something like that. It's too masculine, but mm -hmm. it's what I like. And it was my name on it. So thank you very much. That was my thing. Yeah. And the other thing is that there were, there were two reasons behind that and why I was absolutely convinced. First of all, I wanted a bottle that was so neutral, as you said, that it could carry en passant, muscravageur, cologne, portrait of lady, candle flower, anything. And it's always the same bottle and it's coherent with any of these scents. So it has to be neutral. And it has to, and it was like a glorified lab sample. Mm -hmm. Quite glorified. Mm -hmm. Uh, yes. but, and uh, that would go bust quickly. Um, and then I always thought that French elegance, if you look at Chanel, it's a suit. You look at Saint Laurent that I was brought up with, um, the Sarien, it's, um, it's a masculine dress. The first Saint Laurent, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, uh, first dress that Saint Laurent showed was a caban. Um, you know, uh, French style. Feminine uh, for women is usually masculine. It's very androgynous. Um, and so I was never afraid to uh, bring my, uh, to show my perfumes, uh, or my friends' perfumes rather, um, in a slightly masculine bottle. To me, it's neutral. And when you look at, you know, the, the brand that I've always looked up to in terms of uh, style is Chanel. It's, if you think of it, it's quite masculine in mm -hmm. terms of style. It's fun, thought of that. So let's go to Portrait of a Lady. Wow, Portrait of a Lady. That's, you know what? To what we were saying before, Portrait of a Lady was a real question. Uh, as whether it was part of life or too extravagant. Mm. And to the end, I wasn't certain that it wasn't so extraordinarily beautiful that it would, it could be part of, everybody, of everybody's everyday life. There is this great text about Greta Garbo written by a man called Roland Barthes that always sort of um, puzzled me, where he says that Greta Garbo was sort of forced to stay into retirement. She would have loved to have a comeback because she was so extraordinarily beautiful so classic, so much like a goddess, that Hollywood could not find a part for her. And that was, you know, an everyday American woman. So basically she was not bankable anymore because she was too beautiful. And I always wondered until we launched it, 
or until the last days of development, actually, you don't understand why, uh, if uh, Portrait of a Lady was bankable. So Portrait of a Lady, the story of Portrait of a Lady is interesting because it's a perfect illustration of the way we work. Um, it originates in another perfume called Geranium pour Monsieur. So it happened that my father used to use a mouthwash, which, which was a very old product from the 18th century called Eau de Boto, which uh, was made for Louis XV. I learned later. Mm. I didn't know about that. Um, and I always loved the smell. And I didn't know if it was a psychological thing, it was very close to my father, or if it was truly good. Uh, but I explained to Dominique why I liked it. And so after lunch, uh, I remember we had lunch in this place called Le Soufflet, and we went to, it's funny how you remember always all these places. Mm -hmm. uh, we went to this pharmacy, Rue de Castiglione, bought the product, he smelled it, and said, no, 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 it really smells good. And I understand exactly what you're saying. So the next day, I go to the lab, he had already knocked it off, just from smelling, I mean, the guys are the real deal. And, and we started jamming about, you know, should we add sandalwood? Uh, should we increase the rose? After all, it's a geranium. Um, and we sort of mapped out how we would turn this mouthwash into a full-fledged men's perfume. Mm -hmm. And a few, years, a, a few months of work uh, after, we were done with this. So I use a lot of geranium pour monsieur. It's one of the most inventive, speaking about getting outside the usual tracks. It's a very unique perfume. Mm -hmm. um, I love it. So I use it a lot. And I use the shower gel, which I recommend to anyone um, and of Geranium pour Monsieur. And it so happens that what we had built, um, this dry down, which is quite sandalwood, musky, um, a balmy, benzoin smell, um, sandalwood, I don't know if I said it, yeah, um, uh, spicy, um, yeah, there's a very good um, uh, CO2 cinnamon in there. I mean, many geeky, interesting things <laughs> in there. Uh, all that dry down, I thought, could be a great perfume and a new way of making an oriental. So I go back to Dominique. I say, have you tried the shower gel? Look, he says, oh, I love the idea. So we started working on this. And we went in circles. It was one of those good ideas, but there was something, a dimension missing. And it was a little bit like a niche perfume what we were doing. And we, we don't, they are, they, often they're not finished. They're just ideas. It's a little bit like, um, they're to sometimes these, what I, what I mean by that, they're they are a little bit like uh, to, per to, uh, to perfumery, what um, lounge music is, is, is to music. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's like boom, 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 all day long, and it's, it, there's nothing coming afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, so we were not happy and not moving. And then we had this conversation about something else and about a rose. And Eureka, you know, we often have those conversations at restaurants. Um, we thought, like, why would we add this sort of wagon of rose? And but in such a way that Dominique was saying, you're crazy, it's gonna be so expensive. It's, if, even if legit, because there's so much, um, and there's a spicy note in Rose which limits us. Um, 
I'm not sure it's going to work because it's it's just too expensive. And I remember Dominique sort of in a guilty way saying, should I even send it to your lab? You look at the numbers. And, and, <laughs> and, and just, You're like, just, la, 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 la. Yeah, just do it. <laughs> you know, it's just that. We'll see what happens. And when uh, the, Valérie, uh, Dominique's uh, assistant, came back, we smelled this thing. And it was like, you know, it was like in the Bible. And there was the light, you know. <gasps> like, Whoa. And it, I've rarely had that in my life, in my professional life. It was amazing. So I was, I was planning to stay. Um, it was the summer. I was planning to stay in Paris for another weekend um, and to see my son and then who was there, there for the summer uh, and then go back to the US for two or three weeks and then we were going to go on vacation. And in fact... I kept on telling Mary, oh, give me a few more days, a few more days. And in <laughs> fact, I went directly on vacation, never came back to the States, um, and kept on working because we were like crazy. Was it finalized by the time you left? No, it wasn't. And um, I remember we were on a boat and I kept on um, smelling. I mean, there's nothing more smelly than a boat, mm -hmm. you re realize that. Um, so going at night on the deck, smelling my samples it also <laughs> it also macerates a lot so i i sort of took bags of samples with me um and just to sort of classify them and then there was one more round i remember uh when we came back that dominique had sent to new york for me and uh and i was at our boutique at um, um 898 madison uh, where I had a little office in those days and smelling the, sorting out the last few samples and there was one which was like, whoa. Mm -hmm. And we were on our own and my wife came to pick me up at the, uh, at the office to, you know, just before dinner and I sprayed on her and that evening, four people asked her what she was wearing. Four. So the next day, Demi calls me and says, Frédéric, I'm not sure it's powerful enough. So the meat well, we don't smell it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> because we have smelled this thing so much and it's like wearing a perfume every day. Uh, but trust me, it does smell. <laughs> I had four people asking. That's and, and we both think it smells good. Weak, but good. And it's not weak and it's good. Um, but then I was always, you know, I was reassured by these four people. And I was also reassured by, you know, the, um, because Marie was, by, by that time, was completely hooked. Mm -hmm. So um, by the fact that, you know, people kept on asking. But I must say that when I was developing this, I thought it was so extraordinary and so beautiful that I wasn't sure that, you know, there can be a, a bit of vulgarity in this world these days, that it, these two could cohabitate, but it does. And it's funny, it's like... So it was like almost too beautiful? Yeah, to me, uh, my, that was my question with mm. this. Was it too beautiful? But um, obviously it isn't. And it's a, it's a funny thing because it's, I think it's like, it's between a secret garden and almost um, an armor for people. Uh, they, they keep on saying when they wear this, they feel empowered. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's also this sort of thing of beauty that they have on that is very pleasurable and, and gives them that, uh, I don't know, that reassurance. 
in life. I loved earlier when you said that you're that you're obsessed with fragrance. Mm-hmm. Have you always been? Tell me about how your personal history intertwines with the history of scent. So um, my mother was working for Christian Dior and her father was the founder of Christian Dior Perfume. And um, he had passed away before I was born. Uh, but his presence was quite significant. And I'm sure that one of the reasons why my mother was so took her job so seriously was that it was like a connection with her father. Anyways, um, so without being too dramatic, it was, it was very much part of my upbringing, although my mother never taught me anything specific, neither about design uh, nor about smelling. Um, but I knew that perfume existed and I knew that it had had to be taken seriously. Um, and that's already something. And so soon enough, we were wearing perfume when we were like, we meaning my brother and I, um, when we were four or five, we were covered with this thing called Eau Fraiche, Mm -hmm. um, which was like, um, type of cotis sheep done by Rudnitska. It was pretty chic. <laughs> uh, not bad. And um, do you remember the first fragrance that you bought for yourself? Yes, Holson's at fourteen. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So then we were au sauvage, and before going to Holston, I was playing a lot of sports. I was at boarding school, and uh, I remember wearing perfume, and I understood that wearing perfume before playing sports sort of created this strange fusion between skin, uh, sweat, and perfume, mm-hmm. which was really addictive. And I was, I loved that thing. And I was doing, doing it a lot, uh, just for my own pleasure. And I, this sort of really helped me later in, in my career because I understood how addictive a perfume could be. And when people say a oh, perfume has to be sexy, it sort of meant something to me. Um, then fast forward, um, when I was 14, my mother, um, came back home with two great American perfumes. One was Aramis and the other one was called called Holston's at 14 and Mm -hmm. I loved them. Mm -hmm. And they were sort of not What was it about them that you loved? They they were strong. Mm -hmm. They were real perfumes. And in France, in our little sort of chic milieu, Wearing something strong was seen as like Ugh, vulgar, <laughs> not done, not us. And I thought they were so. I didn't know sexy yet, but mm-hmm. I was about to know quickly soon. And um, and I remember coming here because my father always had this very close connection to America uh, here and buying that Holson's at fourteen. And and then I started going out at a very early age, um, and. I was wearing this. I was the only boy in Paris who was smelling of this. And I was empowered. Like some people feel empowered port- wearing Portrait of a Lady uh, or Muse Carvageur. Mm. I was empowered by Holston's at 14 mm-hmm. at the age of 15 or something. Amazing. I it was so cool. And I loved the bottle. It was designed by this Japanese guy. The whole thing was cool. Mm. Picture by Hero. Everything was good about this thing. Earlier, you said that you learned how to smell when you worked in a lab. Yeah. Um, 
Tell us about working in the lab and how do you learn how to smell? And for those of us who don't have your refined olfactive sense, how can we better hone our sense of smell, especially when we're buying fragrances? So when I went to perfumery school, I learned two things. So what you, when you go to, when you learn perfumery, you first learn the notes, the ingredients that are part of a perfume. Mm -hmm. And so it's like learning vocabulary. When you go, if you want to learn French, they're going to give you pages of vocabulary mm -hmm. to learn. And you, you write the name of the perfume, of the, of the ingredient, sorry. And you write everything that it evokes to you. I remember um, carrot seed, smell like uh, my grandmother's car in Biarritz, God knows why, <laughs> uh, you know, things like that. And so you make these connections and because they are, your, they are your connections, you connect them with food, with places, with people. Um, and then you, the world starts growing and you understand that there are connections between them. So it becomes like this world. I'm not so sure that this is important to people, to be honest. Because when you smell a perfume, it's quite difficult to spot that note or that note in it because it's, they're sort of fused. Mm. And some, some perfumes I like, because we, we work with fairly short formulas, with our perfumes, it's not too difficult. Some, some are, more, are easier than others. Um, but it's not so important because you will understand if you know perfumery that most people go back to always the same perfume. Hmm. They say, oh, I love, I don't know. Um, My very first one was Paloma Picasso. Yes. So Paloma Picasso, for instance, it's... It, the first one in this mm -hmm. is called Shocking Bascaparelli. Mm -hmm. It's a Jean-Claude perfume. And um, this was rediscovered by a perfumer called Jean-Louis Siozac, who made a perfume called Coriandre, which is not well known at all. And Coriandre was a great influence of Paloma Picasso, knowing all these what we call fruity sheep, mm -hmm. which are fabulous perfume. Mm -hmm. Beginning to laugh. And um, and so that's that's a category, and and then you have those parallel cousins that are sort of you know um, in a drier way you had and not as fruity you can have aromatic elixir but it comes from something else mm -hmm. uh, things like that so you you understand but some people for instance will love say oh I've been wearing Paloma Picasso and then I went to aromatic elixir so all of a sudden you understand the sort of perfume architecture that you're after. And I think that this perfume architecture, those what we call perfume structures, is more important to my eye than, than ingredients. Because unless you're a perfumer or someone like me who works with perfumers and speak in terms of ingredients, because that's our language, mm. um, especially at the end when you do the tweaking, at the beginning you don't want to be too close to that. Um, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's irrelevant. What, what you need, I mean, to find a perfume for yourself, you need to find something that you're comfortable with. And usually you're more or less comfortable with the same thing. Mm -hmm. 
Frederick, it, it's clear how much you love art and culture. So I'd love to do a speed round. Wow. And ask you, some of, the, <laughs> <laughs> ask you some of your favorite things and maybe what scent they evoke. So first one, what was the last movie that you saw? I saw, it's funny, I played, I, I, I see about a movie every day. Uh, I saw Chabrol Les Cousins, which is very early Claude Chabrol last night. And uh, yeah, it's Nouvelle Vague before Nouvelle Vague. What's a recent book that inspired you? Uh, a book that inspired me. Oh my God, it's, it's very French. Um, it's called Proust, Une Histoire de Famille by a girl called Laure Murat. Um, it's sort of a... a a reinterpret uh, an analysis of Proust, uh, uh, of no, of French aristocracy through and her own world, through the reading of Proust. It's um, it's actually quite good. It's quite clever. It's it sounds incredibly boring, but it's a page turner. <laughs> <laughs> and the fragrance, probably the perfume that we made for Albert, uh, superstitious. Is there a scent, a smell that you never tire of? Patchouli. Or rose, or I don't know. Um, many, in fact, yeah. It's like um, it's. I like the light of day. Uh, these are the light of our days. I mean, uh, there are just so many ingredients that are exciting. And conversely, uh, is there a scent or a smell that you just can't abide? Yes, uh, there are a few, um, but you know what. Something like dihydromyrcenol, for instance, which is to me like the epitome of vulgarity. But then on the other hand, I use it in some of our perfumes. Mm. So it's just to say that it's a matter of context. Um, sometimes a little hint of something that you detest um, can be beautiful. What building in New York City do you love? The Seagram building. The Seagram building? Yeah. And but I love, but you know... If you look at my perfume collection, it's so eclectic. I love the Seagram, but I also love the Chrysler. Um, you know, and that little part of New York is fantastic. If you were scenting the Seagram building, Ooh. what would that be like? Maybe Muscaragere, because it has this block to it, this sort of fake simplicity. Also, the fact that it's brown. Mm -hmm. You're having a dinner party mm -hmm. and you can invite any artist, living or dead, who would who would you bring to the table? Oh wow. I don't know. Someone with a good sense of humor. <laughs> Probably Jean Renoir. Um, the film director. Um, because it's this mix of Sensitivity, great observation, culture, yeah. Final, final speed question. If you could time travel, what is a moment in time that you'd love to go back to? I don't want to go back to anything, honestly. Mm. Um, I think that some heroic times, because I suppose it's like a dreamt thing, um, is the la late 60s uh, in Paris, where... Mm. It was a very optimistic uh, moment, uh, great design, uh, great movies, um, 
complete freedom sexually and um, still a little politeness from the 19th century. Um, but yet people that were very adventurous, like actually my family uh, and so on. So I see that like a, a golden era somehow. Mm. And when I see my uncle's movies and all this, it's it's I sort of love that. But to be honest, there were also many imperfections. There were many, uh, you know, people were still quite conservative in many ways. Uh, there were many things that were wrong then, inequalities and so on. Um, so I, I don't like to go back. I could have said also the 18th century Versailles, which is this sort of epitome mm. of refinement, but it's the most inequalitarian, violent, you know, disease everywhere, uh, wars, uh, time. So I always like to think of tomorrow rather than, the, even it, though it can be seen as difficult. Uh, I hate to be that person who was saying it was better last year, mm -hmm. it was better when we were kids. Um, I always found these people incredibly boring. You have to live the moment. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that so many of us find everything that you've done and everything wow. that you stand for incredibly inspiring. Thank you. So I my final it. question. I'm not sure I deserve that, but <laughs> it's very I'm true. I'm lucky to work with talented people. Um, I would love to end by asking you, what advice do you give to people who hope to follow in your footsteps? Be yourself and work hard. It's 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 really it's I think that. Whatever job you do or life you choose, you have to have a spine and and st stick to your guts and that's it. And and but also uh there's no luck. I think you you generate your luck, your good luck. I mean some people are unlucky, but it's it's um it's just hard work. It's very boring, but it's true. <laughs> Well, this has been anything but boring. Thank you. No, oh, thank you so much. It was great, Jenny. You've been listening to Scent World. For more unfiltered conversations with perfumers, visionaries, and fragrance lovers, follow Scent World wherever you get your podcasts. Scent World is a Scentbird original series produced by Flowship. Today's episode was executive produced by Maria Nurislamova. Produced by Mike Giordani. Edited by Ramiro Gava. Mixed by Alex Roses. Production support by Peely Melendez. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. <laughs>